Some of you guys already know Jeff got married this weekend, and uh, I knew he was going to, so ahead of that, I changed Crystal's name in my phone to Crystal Kelly, and she was pretty excited about that. Before the service, well, during the service, in the first service, Alan joked that um, now that Jeff's married, he'll probably be a whole lot better behaved around here than he has been. And I just needed to add that, unfortunately for you guys, I did not get married. So I'm going to be acting about the same. So you can go ahead and start looking forward to that little deal. But, you know, the thing is about a wedding, like they, they change the name, right, of the, of the girl in them. It's funny because I, when my soon-to-be brother-in-law, like October 17th soon-to-be, called me to ask for my blessing to marry my sister. Our dad passed away in 03, so he didn't have a dad to call. He called me. Um, I gave him a little bit of a hard time, and I said, well, Andrew, you seem like a pretty good fella. Um, there's only one condition that I have for you. You can have my sister's hand in marriage if you'll take her name. And he kind of he bucked up on me a little bit. Now, wait a minute. And I'm um, he didn't, he didn't like that idea too much, but I get to officiate the ceremony, so I get to decide in whose name I'm going to say. Uh, I might be announcing to the congregation, Mr. and Mrs. Morgan Coatney. I'll be looking forward to that deal. Names, names are a big deal, though, guys. They really are. Turns out Juliet was wrong when she implied that they were meaningless, right? What's in a name would arose by any other name not smell as sweet? In other words, does it mean anything that my last name and your last name, Romeo, are different? Well, it means you're both going to end up committing suicide. That's what it means. I mean, bottom, that's what it ended up meaning in their case. But, you know, we quote these things without thinking about what the implications really are that the author intended, you know. Names, names are important. My mom's brothers and sisters, there are nine names in that deal. You know how some people do, like, my buddy Johnny out in Knoxville, his, he and his sister and his brother are Johnny, Katie, Lucas, J.K.L., right? Isn't that cute? And I had a, you know, a family member who, their whole family were all L's, like Larry, Leanne, Linda, whatever else they had, I don't know, Lucy, Larry, whatever, I don't all of them L's, right? My mom is like the ultimate case of that, because there are nine of them. And here's how it goes. Ralph Ross, Rose Ruth, Ray Richard, Rena Rita, Roger. Boom. I had to memorize that when I was a kid before I memorized the ABCs, you know? All the nine R's. Because names are important to people. And I've shared this with some folks before, but my grandma, check this out, her siblings. Venus, Norley, Elsie, and Jim. All girls. You know, names, names are crazy. When we meet somebody, what do we usually tell them? Our name, that's right, our name. Because names are important and they carry with them the information that's included in people's perception of who we are. So names are symbols, right? So when we think about the name of God... Sometimes you'll hear people say, and it's a beautiful sentiment, that there are all these names for God in the Bible. Well, there aren't all these names for God in the Bible. There's one name for God in the Bible, and He reveals it 
to his people when he comes into covenant with them. And the name of God is Yahweh. He's the God of the covenant. And, and here's what he does. He takes the people who've received his promise and who since then have lived in oppression and slavery and estrangement from their home for generations. He delivers them out of that exile. He rescues them from that oppression. And he brings them to a mountain called Sinai or Horeb. Two words, same place. And he brings them into covenant with himself. And the book of Deuteronomy, which we're going to kind of check out this morning, it works like this. It's like a big treaty between God and Israel. That's, it looks like treaty documents from the time that it was written. There are some extant copies of treaties that we can get our hands on. And the ones from the Hittites about the same time that Deuteronomy was written, 2nd um, millennium B.C., look a lot like the book of Deuteronomy, the way it's set up. What you get is this historical prologue, then you get general stipulations, then you get specific stipulations, then you get blessings and curses, then you get witnesses, all these different segments. And that's the way the book of Deuteronomy is organized as well. And so here's what we get. We've got God saying, you know what, you had an agreement in Egypt. And the agreement was this, you would live in slavery, you would do what you were told by this oppressive regime, you would be required to do more work than is humanly possible, and you would be required to do so with less than adequate materials, and you would be told to worship who they worship, you would be told to worship how they say to worship, you would be slaves to the people of Egypt, especially to their king. It was probably Ramesses III. Um, it was either between Ramesses III or Seti I. There's a little span in there, and that's probably when Israel was there. And so they would have seen him as the sun god, the most powerful of all the deities of Egypt. And he would have been the personification of that, that god. And they had to worship him. At least they had to, um, they had to give credence to him as their ruler. And here's what Yahweh says. He says, look, no longer is that the case. No longer are you these working slaves. No longer are you these slave laborers. But now you are going to be slaves to the terms of my covenant. And the terms of my covenant are love. So it's kind of cool. If you're a believer in Christ, you can say you're a slave to love. There's like a thousand songs written about that. So we're slaves to love. So when God brings these people together, he... he delivers them out of Egypt. It's important to re recognize that. And then he delivers to them a word for them, a word that's going to form them into the people of God. And then we get to what's called the Book of the Covenant, which we call the Ten Commandments. But we can't think about this Book of the Covenant outside of this context that it is founded by rescue in other words, there can be no covenant without this great act of rescue on the part of Yahweh. And it's founded on this love relationship between the people of Israel and their God. So without rescue, without love, there is no covenant. 
And so we get to the Ten Commandments, and they're basically the basis for every single worthwhile code of law in the history of governments. And even though that's true, and they can change nations to make them more just, they can change societies to make them more equitable, without recognizing that these are the laws of Yahweh, the Deliverer, they have no power to change the human heart. And so we need to set these laws in context and recognize that they're the reflection of God's mighty acts of deliverance and love on the part of his people. We get to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, and here's what God says about, about his law. And the Hebrew word for this law is Torah. And the Torah is the instruction of God that teaches us and trains us in God's ways. It is the life-giving word of God that teaches us and trains us in God's ways. That's what Torah is. So think about this for a second. Think about when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It kind of sheds new light on a statement like that, doesn't it? He's saying, I am what Torah is. I am the life-giving word that will teach you and train you in God's ways. I, the Torah sets people apart as a nation who will demonstrate the goodness and the glory of God to all the other nations. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will set you apart as the ones who are the people of God. And the way that I'll do that is not by enslaving you to rules and regulations, is not by asking you to do all this work that I, as God, am somehow unable to achieve, but I will do it by making you those who love me and love each other. I will write my Torah, my life-giving word, on your hearts. And this written form of my word will become authoritative in your lives to the degree that it will actually change us into those who reflect Christ-likeness everywhere we go. Torah. And the whole program of Torah, the whole program of this book of the covenant is all based on the identity of the God of Israel whose name is Yahweh. That's why the first commandment says, I am Yahweh. The second commandment says, don't doodle any pictures of me or carve them into stone, or, by the way, don't make pictures of anything else to worship either. And then the third commandment says, and let's read it together here. If you've got your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. Let's get in this together, and we'll get to work a little bit here. All that by way of introduction. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord. See that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see all caps like that, that's the divine name. It's written out, W-H-Y-H-W-H. If you were to read it in Hebrew, that's what it would look like. But because it's so holy, it can't even be stated aloud. They change it and just say Lord, which is Adonai in Hebrew. It says Yahweh. I am Yahweh. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. And vain here means emptiness. So, don't use it in a way that empties it of its significance. Don't use the name of Yahweh in a way that empties it of its significance. For 
Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this, this take, it means like take up. Kind of, you, you can take up a weapon, right? And you can, you know, go to war with it. You can take up a banner, right? And you can have it be a rallying point for those who are like on your side. You can take up a cause, right? And you can run with that cause and try to promote it. You can take up an instrument and you can make music. So it's, you're taking up the name of the Lord. And the idea is that this name of the Lord is something that can be used to gain leverage, used to assert authority, used to promote an agenda. And here's what God's saying. Do not take up my name to assert any authority other than mine. Do not take up my name to promote any agenda other than mine. Do not use my name to gain leverage in any way that might be self-serving or that might be personally beneficial or that might be manipulative towards another person or that might be inequitable or that might be unjust. Do not use my name that way because if you do, I will find you guilty. And this idea of holding somebody guiltless, it's very significant because the metaphor in which this command is placed is a law court metaphor. So taking the Lord's name in vain typically would mean that here comes a poor man on this side with no power. Here comes a rich man on this side with much power. And the judge sees, I'm in fear of this powerful man. I have something to gain from this rich man. Therefore, I find in favor of the rich man Poor man, you're guilty in the name of Yahweh, the God of the covenant. And Yahweh says, you might find him guilty, but if you use my name in vain, I will not hold you guiltless. I will not consider you to be in the right. Or when we get to the New Testament, the word that we hear is justified. Those who take up the name of Yahweh, those who take up the name of the God of the covenant in emptiness, will not be counted as those who are justified. When we come into the kingdom of Christ, when we place our faith in the gospel, each of us takes on the name of the Lord, right? It is by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord that you are saved. This is not... In, in my reading, this is not as much a reference to Caesar alone as it is a dual reference to Caesar and Yahweh. Paul was thoroughly Jewish. And if he makes a Jewish reference, we need to fill it up with Jewish truth. Jesus said to the people, I am. Right? Before Abraham was, I am. That's a reference to the divine name. Jesus claiming to be one with the God of Israel's covenant, Yahweh. So we take on the name of Jesus, and in doing so, we take on the name of Yahweh. Now, makes sense. If we do that in emptiness, in other words, if we deny the significance of who God is, we deny the significance of His rescuing work, we deny the significance of His life-giving Word, Jesus Christ, taking up residence in our hearts and forming us into the people of God, we're not held guiltless. Because it's just a sham. Many will say to me in that day, Yahweh, Yahweh, have I not done this? Have I not done that? Have I not acted right? Have I not been? Depart from me, 
you worker of wickedness, for I have never known you. The Lord will not hold guiltless those who take up his name in emptiness. So we can be guilty of that in a way that belies our relationship with the Lord in the first place. If we haven't committed ourselves to the gospel, and if we have not received the implanted word, which is Christ in us, we can also do that in a way that besmears the name of the Lord. Though it may not justify, it may not jeopardize our salvation. If we're in Christ, we're secure. But we need to live as those who would bring glory and honor to the Lord. That's the reason he's placed his word in our hearts to begin with. So that he could form us into a people who are ready to live as rulers of creation for eternity. He's forming character in us. That's what his word does. That's what it's given to us to do. That's how it operates in our hearts. It changes us as we allow our minds intentionally to be transformed by it. That ain't going to happen by accident. We have to allow God's word to change us into God's people, to make us like Christ by continually, habitually making decisions that reflect God's purposes in our lives. I'm building a guitar right now. Um, Mark's father-in-law has helped me, and Mr. Ralph is awesome. Listen, he's older than I am. He's, he's an older gentleman. He, he's so really healthy and spry. You know, he's like energetic, all that stuff. But, you know, he's probably, what, 60-something? I don't know how old he is. 70? Yeah, he's, you know, he's older than me. And, you know, he's, he's not as strong and as um, probably as steady as he used to be. You know, he shakes a little bit. But check this out. I don't. I don't, I don't shake at all. I mean, look, I'm steady hands. You know, it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm pretty strong. I'm not super strong, but I'm pretty strong, you know. But he can do things with a piece of wood way, way better than I can. Even the parts that take strength, like... The, the kinds of strength that go into this exact labor, he's stronger than me in those ways. He is. Like, it's crazy. I'm like trying to squeeze a clamp, right? And he just grabs it and squeezes it and sticks it on. It's like muscle memory. You know why that is? Because habitual repetition of the same skills has made it second nature for him to squeeze that clamp. It has made it second nature for him to move a piece of wood through a bandsaw. He's done it so much that it's second nature. And so we can begin to tell the truth so much that it is second nature for us. And we're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We can begin to reject adulterous thoughts so often and so regularly that it becomes second nature to us. And we can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We can begin to live lives that are a true and genuine reflection of the essence of the covenant of Yahweh. A true and genuine reflection of the name that we have taken up as believers in Christ. We can begin to do that by habitually making decisions that reflect God's word in our lives. And we're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and God's written word graven in our hearts. The written form of the treaty is the authoritative form of the treaty. Isn't that cool? 
And so when God writes his word on our hearts, it is an authoritative document binding us in a covenant to Yahweh. And we become, at that moment, slaves to love. We have to be careful, though. We have to be careful in the ways that we take up the Lord's name. Have you ever heard anybody say with just this sort of gross certainty, the Lord's telling me to do this? I had a girlfriend one time told me Jesus told her she's supposed to marry me. And I said, well, we need, we need to be having a little three-way conversation here because I ain't picking up on this little station you're on, you know. When people tell us that God has said things that promote a personal agenda, we can be assured that they're using the name of the Lord in vain, without his permission, in a way that empties it of its significance. When we see injustice being rationalized and then having the name of the Lord bolted onto it, we know that what we're witnessing is a taking up of God's name in vain. When we hear, um, I don't know who the people on the radio are right now. I mean, but just listening to Lady Gaga's music, I call her Mr. Gaga. If we're listening to Mr. Gaga's music, then if, if this creature were to, in an award ceremony, say something like, thank you, Jesus, which I don't know that this creature has ever done anything along those lines. I, I'm not accusing this creature of saying that. But should this creature say that, we can be assured that this is not a good, harmonious reflection of the name of Yahweh. These actions and these words do not line up. You're swimming upstream. You with me? What we want to do, God has created the universe with a rhythm. He has created the universe to work in a certain way. And humans, from the very beginning of history, have been doing it the wrong way. And so the rhythm has been thrown off. In medieval times, they talked about the music of the spheres. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The music of the spheres. So before the fall, all creation was in this beautiful, harmonious state. And even as the planets moved through space, they were aligned in spheres, interlocking in such a way that when they spun, they made the most beautiful celestial music that the world has ever known. And then comes the fall. And the music stops. And the rhythm falls out of whack. And we've all participated in this off-rhythm music and contributed to this off-rhythm music for the entirety of our lives. But when Christ writes Torah on our hearts, He seeks to bring us into rhythm with the universe that He created. He seeks to teach us skillful ways of living life. Just like Mr. Ralph is trying to teach me skillful ways of making a guitar. He gives us the book of the covenant in order to bring the rhythm of our hearts into alignment with the rhythm of the universe. And so that's why in chapter 4, what the Deuteronomist Moses says is that this Torah will be your wisdom and your understanding 
And all the nations will look at you and the way you do life, at the way you govern your affairs, at the way you relate to each other, at the way you receive love and give love back to the God of the covenant. And they will say, this is surely a great people. They surely serve a great God. They are surely unique among the nations. And if we read the Exodus account of the Ten Commandments, what we find out is the whole thing is designed so that Israel can be a nation of priests, a nation of mediators, a nation who takes God's covenant and teaches it to all the other nations. But first, we have to live it. Nobody wants to join a dance that's out of rhythm. Nobody wants to be part of a nation who doesn't live by its own laws. We call that anarchy. And it's a very sloppy state of affairs if you've never witnessed it. Nobody wants to worship a God whose people who have been rescued by Him do not live out worship of Him. But when we by constant repetition, by intentional transforming of our minds and surrender to the Holy Spirit in our hearts, when we bring our lives into alignment with Torah, when we bring our lives into alignment with this life-giving Word that will teach us and train us in God's ways, when we bring our lives into alignment with Christ in us, then and only then will the nations look on and see that we serve a great God. This is a covenant founded on rescue, a covenant founded on promise, and a covenant founded on love. And so when we reflect it, we don't reflect it with rules and regulations. We don't reflect it by trying to keep a stringent list of rules in order. We don't reflect it by trying to Define righteousness by all the things that I like to do and unrighteousness by all the things that they want to do. That's how the world does things. But if we're those who are defined by a covenant founded by rescue, founded by promise, and founded by love, then we're going to live, check this out, by faith or faithfulness, rescue, by hope, promise, and by love that accords with God's love. Sounds like somebody in the New Testament had been reading their Bible, doesn't it? Faith, hope, and love didn't come out of some vacuum. But it comes on the foundation of the covenant between God and man. The reflection of who God is. The embodiment of which is Jesus Christ, who has taken up residence in the hearts of believers. Are you trucking with me? Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus, and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This will be your wisdom and your understanding. Remember that from chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Give you a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Are you with me? The New Testament folks have been reading the Old Testament. And the covenant 
of God with his people is alive in our hearts, we'll just surrender to it. My sister's marrying a pretty good fellow. His name's Andrew. Remember when I told he both he bucked up on me when I told him he's gonna have to take my sister's name. And I would not have respected him had he not bucked up on me at that moment. And I'm excited that my sister's gonna take his name, that they're gonna be joined in an everlasting covenant together. Um, there's an eschatological significance to the covenant of marriage. And I'm thankful to see my sister join in it, to join in something that's going to be reflected for eternity in the relationship between God and his people. And insofar as she's taken up his name, I pray that she'll honor him. I pray that she'll love him. I pray that she'll hope in everything that he promises her. And, and I pray that their union will be a satisfying one for them and a glorifying one for God. Even more than that, I pray that our church would live out the covenant together. The book of the covenant was not written to a singular person. It was written to a body of believers. A body of those who are founded on rescue who are founded on promise and who are founded on love and that's what we are and so let's be those who by continually making decisions that ingrain in us this rhythm that God has designed into the universe let's become those who live out faith hope and love together let's be those for whom taking up the name of the Lord is something that brings him great glory and says to the nations, look at who our God is. He's the one who has installed this rhythm in the way that we live. He's the one who has created love in our hearts. He's the one who has taught us to be those who reflect his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ in here. And I thank you that we come to you together as those who have benefited from your life in Christ and his death and his resurrection. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, Lord. And we eagerly await that inheritance. And I pray that our lives would anticipate the great future to which you've called us, an eternity of ruling and caring for your creation. Teach us to live lives like that, Lord. Continue to form Christ in us as long as we're on this earth. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.